encouragement to have our young people singing specials. If you have your Bibles, this morning we'll be in the book of James. This will be our last time together in our walk through the book of James. It's been a encouraging 13 weeks as we've gone through. I believe that we're going to be saying goodbye to an old friend now that we close out the book today. The have, I have a feeling, however, that as we leave the epistle of James, it, if history for our church shows anything, it might be another 30 years before we get back to the book of James to walk through like we have, um, simply because there are so many other books in the Bible, and by the time we walk through all of those and get back around to James, it will be a long time. The scriptures are truly a bottomless well. You can spend time in them and think that you've plumbed the depths only to find out that there is more there than you will ever draw out. So thankful for the word. I had an old preacher tell me once, and I've come to learn that this is the truth. He said that he feels the most well-equipped to preach a book of the Bible after he has preached the entire book of in that, that entire book in the Bible. I feel that way about the epistle of James. I thought, when we came into it, I thought I had a handle on the epistle of James. I thought I knew what he was saying. And now as we come to the end of it, after having spent all of the study time, I've already preached before today 12 sermons from the book of James. I went through and did some tallies to see what does the study and the preparation look like. It was about 168 hours of study at the desk, 24 pages of handwritten notes. I handwrote the epistle as well, typed out 146 pages of sermon manuscript, and then we spent about 10 hours combined together in the epistle. This is something that should impact our lives. And I'm thankful for the Word of God and the depth that is there. And as I look back upon the epistle of James, the thing that strikes me probably more than anything else, and I did not expect this, was his relationship with the Lord Jesus. Of course, Jesus would have impacted any one of the writers in the New Testament. However, the one that has stood out to me and has come up again and again in my mind is his personal direct relationship with Jesus. You remember that James, the writer of the book, is the brother of Jesus. Uh, One of the brothers who did not follow Jesus while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, and we've explored this idea before, I don't know why it is that he did not trust in Jesus. I think it would be obvious if I was growing up with a brother that was sinless, I would notice that. Perhaps there's sibling rivalry or something else at play. But the Bible is clear that James and his brothers did not follow Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. They rejected him. And yet we see in 1 Corinthians 15 that when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared unto all of the apostles. He appeared to 500 brethren at once. And then it points out, and he appeared also to James. I see the Lord Jesus seeking out James individually, perhaps because the Lord knows exactly what what it is that he has planned for James's life. But then as we walk through the epistle of James, I've seen James repeat the words of Jesus several times. As I think about this, maybe you can think deeply with me, who would it be that would repeat the words of Jesus? It would have been the ones who were with him. But James wasn't with him. And so when James repeats words, in fact, last week we saw these. uh, Look at James 5 and verse 12. Uh, uh, James repeats Jesus and he says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath. But let your yea be yea and your nay nay. Let 
lest you fall into condemnation. And there he's quoting directly from Jesus, Matthew 5, 34 and Matthew 23, verses 17 to 22. We walked through those last week. Uh, another one that uh, was back in chapter 2 and verse 8, uh, chapter 2 and verse 8, he said, if you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, royal law, the law that comes from the King of kings and Lord of lords, if you follow His law, His he repeats the law that comes from Jesus. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. That law was not in the Old Testament. Jesus summarized the Old Testament law, and Jesus is the one that gave this royal law. James repeated it. And you can even see one more back in James 1 and verse 22. This is a summary of what Jesus had said. Uh, he said, but you... Uh, be, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. That was a quote from Jesus, an indirect quote from Jesus, who said in Matthew 7 and verse 24, Wherefore, uh, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Jesus' statement was, uh, don't just be a hearer, but be a doer. James repeated those words. We see James repeating these words of Jesus, and the thing that grabs my attention is, hang on a second, James didn't follow Jesus. You say, wait a second, he did. He followed Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. So how is it that James is repeating the words of Jesus? As a believer, think this through. James, as a believer, spent believer life maximum seven days with Jesus. Maximum. I don't see him spending weeks and months with Jesus. I take that back. Maximum 40 days. 40 days. You've got Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, 40 days later, ascension. So maximum 40 days. I don't see him spending months with Jesus and following Jesus around. But I see the other apostles doing that. Go with Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. You see these statements where the other apostles quote Jesus. Where did they get that? They got that from being with Jesus. James, James, where do you get it? I submit to you, they got, he got it from being with the disciples. And I think to myself, how did that happen? And I wonder if maybe in that upper room, can you just imagine the day of the upper room? I don't know if Jesus shared with the apostles that James was now following, because Jesus' interaction with the apostles was a bit limited in those 40 days. I wonder if in the upper room, the brethren are there, 120 of them in the upper room, and I wonder if James came and knocked on the door. Can you imagine Peter and John open the door? Yeah. Hey, James. They know who he is. He's Jesus' brother. But they don't know him as a believer. They just know him as a family member. What's up? And perhaps as James shares with them, I'm following Jesus now. Oh, well, in that case, welcome in and into the upper room. And I can just imagine in that time, seven to ten days in the upper room, I can just imagine as they perhaps expounded to him the scriptures, share with James, this is what Jesus said. This is what he meant by it. These are the things that he said. And I can just imagine as those words of Christ soak into the heart of James, and now as James sits down years later to pen this epistle to those believers that are scattered abroad as he writes, this epistle. These are the things that Jesus said. And friend, you and I might encourage one another with our words and with our spirit and our attitudes of compassion, but the things that will impact other people's lives are the words of the Lord. And so let us speak to one another with the words, the words that come from Scripture, and yes, even the words of the Lord Jesus. And now James is here repeating these and he comes to today and today's passage he comes to what we might say the 12th question he's had 11 questions before this with the overarching theme of examine your faith are you a true believer james is asking these questions he's assuming that his 
readers, our believers, and today he's asking this question. Uh, do you think that you're in this alone? You think you're all alone in your spiritual journey? Because if you think that you're on your own, there's a really good chance when times get tough and problems come up, there's a really good chance that you're just going to quit. But if you realize that you're not in this by yourself, that there are others that are in this with you, you will approach this Christian life so differently. You are a sheep in the flock of God. You are a child in the family of God. You are one of, not just the only. And so let's look at the scriptures today. Look with me to James chapter 5, verse number 13. James chapter 5 and verse number 13. If is any among you afflicted, let him pray. Is any merry, let him sing psalms. Is any among you afflicted, he asked. And if you think with me to the readers, the ones that received this from chapter 1 and verse 1, James He's the brother of Jesus, and he writes to those that are scattered abroad. And if you think back to, to the beginnings of the book, the people he's writing to, I submit to you that every single one of them is afflicted. The very fact that they're scattered means that they're afflicted. They're going through problems in their life. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their family relationships. They've lost their homes. Perhaps they've lost their land. They're scattered because of the persecution that arose about Stephen. That was Acts 7 and 8. And now they're afflicted. And James writes to them, Is any among you afflicted? Answer, yes, they all are. And what's his response to that? Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Friends, this morning, do not discount the importance of prayer. Our Heavenly Father sent the Lord Jesus to this earth. Remember that Jesus took on robes of flesh so that He could taste death for you and I. He could go to the cross and take our sin upon Himself. And yet, the Lord Jesus, while here on earth doing His earthly ministry, He Himself prayed. You know, prayer is, right? It's speaking with our Heavenly Father. And the Lord Jesus modeled it, and He modeled that it affects every aspect of our lives. It's not just for when I get sick, I pray. Or when I run into a problem, I pray. No, instead, Jesus modeled it and taught His disciples. His disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. So it's okay, here's how you do it. And He goes across every aspect of life. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Set apart your name above all things, and may your name be above all things. And may your will be done on this earth as it is done in heaven. How is the heavenly Father's will done in heaven? Oh, there is no opposition to his will. And yet, on this earth, it is not done that way. And so when we pray, your will be done on earth, may it have free course and may your will go without any opposition. And so we can pray that way. Give us this day our daily bread. We should be looking to God for the fulfillment of the needs of our own sustenance. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things so you can turn to Him who meets our needs. And forgive us of our trespasses, or literally our sins, the very thing that was separating us from God before our salvation separates us in fellowship from Him in our sanctification. And so we should be praying, Oh, Heavenly Father, forgive me of this sin that has now come into my life, whether I did it on purpose or whether I stumbled upon it. Oh, Heavenly Father, forgive me and don't lead me into temptation. Lord, I cannot trust my own heart. I need You. I need you to guide me. And you, you should be the one who gets the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's for you. These are the ways that we should pray. And don't discount it. Don't think that prayer is some kind of cheap way out. How often 
Is any afflicted, he's asked. How often, when you run into some sort of affliction in your life, how often do you go and talk to someone? I have people come to me all the time. Please continue. Come and ask me, Pastor, I don't know what to do in this situation. And my answer, and I'll admit there are times when I feel weak in this, my answer is simply, I have no idea what else to say except, I'm going to pray. And friend, in that moment, to you, that might feel like a cheap answer. But friend, I tell you, when we go before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, He opens His ears unto us, and He hears our prayer. So please don't discount it, and don't think that it's the cheap way out, for there is no greater way than for us to go to the One who controls all things and turns, yea, even the hearts of kings, whithersoever he wills we can go to him in prayer don't discount it is any among you afflicted let him pray the word afflicted means to suffer hardships so it's not necessarily restricted only to illness i know that a lot of times when we think of affliction we think of illness he did this in chapter one He used the word temptation, and he had multiple uses for it. We saw that back in chapter 1. There were times when you have a trial that comes up in your life, and you don't know what to do about it. Or maybe it's a sinful trial that comes up. He gave multiple uses of that word back in chapter 1. And now here we are at the end of the book in chapter 5. And he says, is any of you afflicted? And affliction can come in multiple different ways. Perhaps... Maybe you got a bad review at the end of the year for your work performance, and that means that you won't be getting a raise, and you don't know how you're going to be able to meet the financial needs of your family. That's an affliction. You have an affliction? Pray. Or maybe your spouse just up and walked out on you. Maybe you know why, and maybe you don't know why. That's an affliction. And He calls you to pray. Maybe it's poor health and you've done everything that the doctors have told you to do, but you don't know why and you just keep getting sick. That's affliction. And He calls us to pray. And as I think of right now, globally, what's happening, I can't help but wonder, are we on the brink of something like what we've not seen in our lifetime. I feel like, maybe I said this a couple weeks ago, I feel like it's March of 2020 all over again. I have no idea what's about to happen. But just because it has not happened in our lifetime doesn't mean that it won't happen. I'll give you an example On the 3rd of February, 1942, at 3 a.m., six bombers flew over Port Moresby and interrupted the lives of a lot of people that were in Port Moresby. And for the next 18 months, that continued. Don't think that we're immune because we haven't seen it happen. I want to say this now while it's not happening. Because it's very possible. Is any among you afflicted? For if things go the way they very well could go, our lives could be very different within the next few months and over the next few years. I don't say that to be doom and gloom. I say it because it's a reality, friend. Right now, There are 8,000 people that have died who a month ago did not even know that that war was coming. So don't think that we're immune from it. I don't say that to align anybody with any side or geopolitical movement. But I just want us to know, brothers and sisters, we're not immune. Is any afflicted? 
and affliction can come in many different ways. When God calls on us to pray for peace, there's a reason. So pray. James chapter 5 and verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Don't try to buckle down and muscle your way through it. Don't think, oh, if I can just work my way through this, I'll be okay. Several years ago, I remember I was in the U.S. and, and my, I got to spend some time with my nephews and nieces. And you guys got to meet Graham just a few weeks ago. I, just, I love my nephews and nieces. You guys do as well. Love your nephews and nieces. And I remember Becky and I were driving the car and my nephew, oldest nephew, Ben, was five years old at that time. Ben was sitting in the back seat. And as I drove, I realized that something was happening in the back seat with Ben. When Ben was five, he had an eye that was lazy. And the, the doctor prescribed for him to wear a patch. I want to say uh, the eye that was lazy on one side and the patch was supposed to go on the other side to cause that eye to strengthen. And so you can just imagine the poor kid at five years old, he's got one eye that doesn't work properly and the other eye he has to keep it covered. That's frustrating, right? And so here he is at five years old. I just remember he's in the back seat of the car and, and I didn't realize it at the time, but as we're driving, the sun was coming in on one side of the car and it was catching just behind that patch enough to where it was disturbing his eye and it was really bothering him. I didn't know that. I'm just driving. And as I'm driving, I hear from the back seat this blood-curdling scream as he grabbed the patch and ripped it off his face. And he's like, ah! He was so frustrated. I turn around, Ben, what are you doing? You just broke your patch. What is wrong? Sun is coming in and it's hurting my eye. And he's so frustrated. And he's just muscling his way through this problem. I said, Ben... I love you, buddy. All you had to do was tell me. I would have stopped the vehicle and we would have rotated where people were sitting so that you didn't have to sit there with that. And now you've broken your patch. Guys, at a greater level, our Heavenly Father knows what it is that we need. And our Heavenly Father wants to hear from His children. He's not sitting back like a mean ogre going, I know you need help. No, he's sitting there going, I know what it is that you need, just ask. And so brothers and sisters, come to him in prayer. If any of you is afflicted, pray. And if I can just echo James's undertone here, all of you that are afflicted, pray. He gives a second part of this in verse 13. He goes a little bit further. He doesn't say, again, afflicted, but watch what he says. Is any Mary, the latter half of verse 13, is any Mary, let him sing psalms. Almost, I think, because this doesn't fit within the rest of the passage, I think this is almost a joke for him. Because he knows they're all afflicted. 50,000 believers have been scattered and lost their homes. Any of you are afflicted, pray. Any of you guys that are Mary, you're sick in the head. <laughs> That's kind of what... But he doesn't say you're sick in the head. If you're Mary things are going well for you, do what? Sing psalms. And he's going to go back to praying in just a moment, uh, but I think he interjects this statement here. If you are married, if things are going well and you don't have an affliction in your life right now, don't turn your back and say, well, hey, I've got things worked out. Great is my life. No, instead, turn to our Heavenly Father, who is the giver of all good things, and turn to Him with gratitude. I'm going to sing psalms to you, Heavenly Father. So in the times of affliction, I'm going to turn to you and look for sustenance and help but in times of good i'm also going to turn to you and recognize that you are lord over all good and bad so if you're having a bad day pray having a good day sing but all throughout life put him as the priority second verse 14 and 15 here goes the first one was are you afflicted okay pray second one are you sick pray verse 14 is any among you, is any sick among you? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. 
Are you sick? Again, pray. I think this doubles down a little bit deeper than just afflicted. Afflicted was wide definition. Now sick, we're coming down to a very thin definition. And within this meaning of sick, I see the uh, meaning from the original languages. It sounds like more like weak and impotent, diseased. I have in my mind a picture of a man laying on a bed, a sick bed. He's unable to get up and go somewhere. He's unable to go get his own things. And so if you're afflicted, sure, pray. But if you're stuck there in bed and you're at such a low point in your life that you can't pray for yourself, here's what he says in verse 14. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. You find yourself in a spot where you're just so low. Don't give up. Because prayer still works. So maybe if you're not able to pray over yourself, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over you. I'll I'll just point out, because it's not the point of the passage, but it's worth pointing out the statement there in verse 14. Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. He didn't say call the elders of the churches, to call the elders of the church. So you're within a church, and within the church you have multiple elders. Uh, Today, we don't so much call elders as we say pastors. And so there is biblical precedence here from the book of James to have multiple pastors, and these are the things that we've recently spoken about as a church. But notice what he says for them to do. Let him call, this is the sick, impotent man laying in the bed, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I'll admit that this is not something that we do regularly. It's not something that we do regularly. I don't carry around a little bottle of oil looking for people to anoint. I don't do that. I'll be honest, in my memory, and most of you know a lot of my memory was erased four years ago, so maybe it happened previously and I don't remember. In my memory... I don't think I've ever done this before. I'm not opposed to it. But the statement is, let the man that's sick in the bed call for the pastors or elders of the church to come and, and anoint him with oil. And so that caused me to spend a little bit of time and study in Scripture what is going on with anointing of oil. Of course, it's not a healing thing. This is not a, uh, I guess, not a medicinal thing. It's not, I'm bringing the oil that has medicinal purposes. That's not the idea here. And so as I look through the Scriptures and see the use of oil, usually it was olive oil, very prevalent in Israel still until this day. It was used often to anoint or set apart a priest or a king, to set them apart for their priestly duties or king duties. I don't think that's what's going on here. I come into the New Testament, I see in the New Testament two different times that anointing with oil is spoken of. By the way, for this type of use, this is the only verse in the New Testament that even talks about this. And so I'm slow to build a theology upon it because I don't exactly know what he means. And to be honest, not very many people speak about it. So what does it say? What's it mean? The first one that I see, I see two other uses. One is in Luke 7. I don't have the verse, but you might remember this was Jesus came into the Pharisee's home. And when the lady came and washed his feet with her hair, and wept over his feet, and spilled the precious ointment, Jesus made the statement to the Pharisee, he said, I came into your house and you did not anoint my head with oil. Makes me think that perhaps there was a custom in that day that when you had an esteemed guest come to your house, perhaps you would anoint their head with oil. I don't know. Another use was in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus sent out his disciples to heal and he sent them with oil. You can see this verse, Mark 6 and verse 13. The disciples cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. And so when I come with that thought into James 5, I see praying over someone that they could be healed, anointing them with oil, 
separating them unto the Lord, blessing someone with oil upon their head. I'll be honest, I don't really understand fully how that works. I want to be very slow to say that if we have someone among us who is sick and unable to get up and come to the service, and that if I were to go to them and pray over them and put oil on them, that that would heal them. I want to be very slow to say that. That's not what the Scripture says either. Perhaps it has something to do with touch. When you anoint someone's head with oil, you put your hands upon them. And perhaps it has something to do with touch. And the number of times as I look through the Scriptures and see the Lord Jesus touching and healing, I see something beautiful there. Think of the lepers as Jesus would touch the lepers and heal them. You see, nobody else wanted to touch the lepers. And let's be honest, when someone's sick in their sick bed, those that are the closest to them will be the ones that will wash them and care for them, but others who are not directly related to them will be slow to touch. I can't help but wonder if perhaps the anointing of oil is a physical display of the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ in modern day. I don't know. And yet the statement is here, and so I'll say, as your pastor, if that were to come up, I would not say no. I'd be thrilled to come and sit with you in your home, anoint you with oil, touch you, and pray over you. The healing would be up to the Lord. That's not for me, that's for Him. And I think you can see that in verse number 16, uh, verse number 14. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. I think that the statement here, the emphasis is not on the shall. Because there's enough other places in Scripture that says it is completely up to the Lord whether He will do it. If we come and we place the emphasis on shall, that means that we tie the hands of the Lord. In other words, if you're following along with me, follow the logical thought. If the emphasis is on shall, in other words, He shall heal him. If the emphasis is on shall, then that means that all we have to do is pray and put oil on someone and they will be healed. And yet we know both practically and scripturally that that's not the case. For sometimes the Lord has other plans wherein for your good and His glory He chooses not to heal you. Paul's own words, I had a thorn in the flesh and I besought the Lord three times and He said to me, your, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is shown in your weakness. And so perhaps the Heavenly Father might choose not to heal. And if He does choose not to heal, it is for His glory and it is for your good. So what is the emphasis in verse number 15 then? I see the emphasis twofold. The prayer of faith and the Lord. I'm going to pray, not having faith in myself, complete faith in the Lord. So as I pray over the sick person, he doesn't have the strength to pray for himself anymore. And so I come and I pray, God, would you do your healing work in his life, if it be your will? And I'll put oil here, and I'll touch, and I'll pray with compassion. The faith is not in myself. My faith is in him, knowing that he can do whatever he pleases, and if he gets healed, it will be the Lord who does it. You see, that's the twofold statement there. The prayer of faith and the Lord. And we leave it up to him. I see an additional statement here, and it's a segue at the end of verse 15 that kind of leads us into verse 16. So here's verse 15. The end of verse 15. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I think that that is a very interesting place to bring in the statement of sins. 
I want to be very slow, brothers and sisters. I want to be very slow to tie sickness to sin. However, 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul did tie those together. And so what's that look like? It looks like this. If you, as a believer, choose to continue to sin and you do not turn your back against sin, God has every right to bring sickness into your life. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews speaks to this as well. He has every right as your father to scourge you and chasten you. And so it is good, brothers and sisters, hear this well. It is good when you find yourself in illness, check your spiritual state. God, am I right between me and you? Is there any sin that I've got between me and you? And if there is, let me confess it. For if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful promise. But if there is not sin, I find it interesting that he would go there in this statement. So as you... Pray with him, you see healing, and you see forgiveness of sin. Where did that come from? I think that goes back to Jesus again. In Mark chapter 2, there were four guys that came to see Jesus, and they brought their friend. Do you remember that? He was sick, he had the palsy. Literally, he cannot get up, and he has no strength to walk for himself, so his four friends carried him to bring him to Jesus. They knew if we can get him to Jesus, by the way, Jesus' own words, he saw their faith. It wasn't the faith of the guy in the bed sheet, it was the faith of the guys that carried him. The four guys, they get to the house where Jesus is, they see that the house is packed, there's no space to get in the house, they can't come through the door, can't go through the window, they do what I would have never thought to have done, they go up on the roof and then they start taking the roof off. Who does that? They take the roof off and then they lower this guy down. I can just imagine as the shingles began to come loose, it probably got quiet inside the room as they look up and what in the world is going on? You could have asked the poor guy that owns the house, right? You could have asked. We would have let you in the door. And in comes the fella. They lower the bed sheet down. This was a lot of forethought, by the way. They brought ropes, okay? They lower him down inside the house. And do you remember Jesus' first words to him? Your sins be forgiven you. Hang on a second. They didn't come for sins being forgiven. They came because he can't get out of bed. And Jesus' words, your sins be forgiven you. Now, that caused a bit of a stir within that room as the Pharisees and scribes began to think things, and this is what Mark chapter 2 says, they began to think things like, hang on, only God can forgive sins. Now, because he's Jesus, he heard their thoughts. I'll let that sink in later. He heard their thoughts, and he said, whether is easier to do, to forgive sins, or whether it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or take up your bed and walk. Now think with me for just a moment, which one is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, take up your bed and walk? Your sins are forgiven is much easier to say, because nobody can see that. I could stand up here and tell you all, your sins are forgiven you. Now if you're a theologian, you're going to fire me as your pastor, Okay? But if we had a sick person in a bed and I said, take up your bedroll and walk, if the dude doesn't get up and walk, you're all calling me a false prophet. That one carries a lot more weight than that one. So Jesus' question, which is easier to say? And they think among themselves, and then Jesus goes, okay, just to prove to you that I can forgive sins, I say unto you that's on the bed, Take up your bedroll and go to the house. And he did, and that was evidence to everyone else that yes, he can heal, but yes, he can also forgive sins. And yes, only God can forgive sins. So I'll let you draw the straight line from God can forgive sins to Jesus just forgave his sins. So Jesus is God. I think that that's where James is coming from when he gets into this passage. We're talking about healing. We're talking about having sins forgiven. And he just, James just tied those together. 
Now that brings us into point number three, which is in verse 16. And, and I think that this is where he's, he was headed in verse 15. So verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So point number three. Are you stuck in sin? Pray with one another. I see a parallel in these two pictures. The one picture is sickness. Are you sick? Are you afflicted? Pray. Are you so sick that you can't even pray anymore? Get your pastor to pray for you. Did you sin? Pray. Do you sin so much that you hate yourself and you can't get rid of it? Get your pastor to pray with you. That's what he's saying here. Hear the words again in verse number 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And for the last 2,000 years of church history, brothers and sisters in Christ have found great help in confessing their faults, confessing to one another. This is called accountability. Asking somebody else, walk through this with me. I need help. So if I was sick, I'm going to pray. And if I sinned, I'm going to pray. And if I'm sick and I'm not getting any help and I need help from somebody else to pray for me, I'm going to ask somebody else to pray for me. And if I'm sinning and I can't stop sinning, I need somebody to help me, I'm going to ask somebody else to help me pray. For, and God will hear that prayer. By the way, friend, I see this as taking the fight against sin to the next level. You need to be fighting sin. Hear me well. Fight your sin. Fight it. Don't give in to your sin. Fight it because your soul depends upon it. Fight your sin. And if you've got to employ the help of your brothers and sisters in Christ, bring them alongside of you. Don't try to fight it in your own flesh, for the flesh will not defeat the flesh. Oh, you need the help that comes from having brothers and sisters. Jesus used a phrase, and I think that most of us end up just quickly discounting his phrase. Here's what Jesus said, and this was early part of Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 9. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. And you know what we are quick to do as believers who listen to the words of Jesus? We're quick to say, well, he didn't really mean cut off your hand or pluck out your eye. So we don't do anything. Listen to how serious Jesus makes this. Mark 9, 43. It's better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, the fire is not quenched. So brothers and sisters, fight your sin. Fight it. And if that means you've got to do some radical amputation from your life, Fight your sin. Maybe you need to move houses. I'm not calling for us to line up and chop our hands off. But maybe there's some rad radical amputation that needs to happen in your life. Maybe you need to stop living with the people that you're living with because those people are impacting your life and leading you down a path. Amputate it. Get rid of it. Take it out of your life. Maybe you need to take your smartphone and throw it in the trash. Maybe you need to get a new job so that you can stop being around those people that impact you after hours. Maybe you need to radically amputate some part of your life that's dragging you down. Fight your sin. And ask your brother in Christ, come along beside me. Because this sin is just like a cancer hiding in the dark. I've got to get it in the light. And an amazing thing happens, friends. Oh, hear me well. An amazing thing happens to sin when you take it out of the dark and you put it in the light. Oh, it shrivels up. So employ the help of your friends. Find somebody that will keep you accountable. 
Listen to the words at the end of verse 16, or the middle of verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see where he went? Started with sickness and he ended with sin. You'll be healed of what? Healed of your affliction if God so wills. Healed of your of your sin, a sickness if God so wills. Healed of your sin. Oh, he definitely wills. So whatever you got to do, fight your sin and get somebody to come along with you. For he closes verse six, uh, 16 out. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Are you sick? Get the pastors to pray with you. Are you stuck in your sinful behavior? Get a Christian friend to come along with you. and Pray with you. And he gives us an example in verse 17. And of all the examples in the Bible, I find this one to be strange and strangely comforting. Here's verse 17. Elias, that's Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, he was just a normal guy, just like you and me. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now, if you don't study 1 Kings chapter 17 to see the story, you'll think that perhaps God sent Elijah to King Ahab to tell Ahab it wasn't going to rain. But that's not what 1 Kings 17 and verse 1 says. I'll read it for you. Here's 1 Kings 17 and verse 1. Elijah meets Ahab along the road. This is the first time we get to see who Elijah is. Here's what it says. As the Lord God of Israel liveth, Elijah speaking to Ahab, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. I submit to you that God did not send Elijah to go tell Ahab that. Elijah stepped out by faith and said, it's not raining. Single-handedly, he's going to overthrow the economy. The place is going to be in famine for three and a half years. And James gives us an insight into it. You see it in verses 17 and 18? He was a man just like you and me. And what did he do? He prayed. And it did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again. And it did rain. And do you remember what the day of rain was like? Because he said, oh, by the way, Ahab, you better hurry and run to the house. It's going to rain. And then, then Elijah went off to the corner and he started praying. And he prayed and he sent his servant, hey, go look at the sky. And the servant comes back. No cloud. Okay, I'm going to keep praying. And here it is, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You see, the prayer of a godly man will move heaven to impact earth. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't discount the power of prayer. Is any afflicted? Pray. Is any sick? Pray. Struggling with sin? Pray. Oh, pray. And then we come to close out the book in verses 19 and 20. I'll give you what I see in it, and then we'll read. Number four, do you see someone who needs to be reminded of the truth? Do you see someone who needs to be reminded of the truth? Go get him. So here's verse 19. Brethren, one last time. He's addressed these Christians as brethren 15 times in this book. Greatest concentration of any of the, uh, of any of the epistles to use the word brethren within so short an amount of time. 15 times he said brethren. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, that's doctrinal truth or behavioral truth. If any of you air and walks away and one converts him literally brings him back let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins he that converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. And I think to myself, hang on a second, James, I thought it was the Lord Jesus that saves our souls. And it is. 
But the Lord Jesus doesn't do that in a vacuum. He uses us to do that. And so if one errs, whether from the faith and doctrine, or whether he errs in his behavior and he walks off into sin, the one who comes along to grab him and brings him back, he's doing the work of our Lord. And so, friend, when you see someone wandering, don't just let them wander off. That's why we call it a covenant community. I make a promise while I'm in my, in my right mind. I make a promise that I want you to come and get me. If I ever wander off from the faith, come and get me. Convert my soul. Bring me back. Save me from death. Cover a multitude of sins. Draw me in. Don't let me go. And I make a promise. That's what we do as members. I make a promise that if I see you wander off, I'm not going to just let you go because I care about your soul. I'm going to come and get you and draw you back in. And James says, hey, if you do that, you save a soul from death and you cover a multitude of sins. So don't be lazy and don't be shy. Know that the work as you follow someone to bring them back is a good and godly work. You are being used as a tool in the hand of our Heavenly Father. You're bringing some back. And so I make these thoughts as we come to a close. Do you care about your brethren? Do you think you're in this all alone? And as I Think back to the relationship between James and our Lord Jesus. I can't help but wonder if James is closing this out at the end of chapter 5, closing out his epistle, thinking back to his own relationship with the Lord Jesus. For as James makes this statement in closing, he says, you see somebody wandering away, they're not lined up with the faith, come and get them. And you realize what Jesus did in his resurrection with James. He didn't leave James off on his own. He's my brother. Jesus went and got him and brought him and saved a soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. James didn't say these words, but I think I'm echoing his sentiment when I say, live like Jesus. Let us go and gather those who have wandered. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word that we've seen today in James chapter 5. Thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together in the epistle of James. God, I pray we would fight sin. Pray that if we struggle and we can't get victory over it, that we would employ the assistance of brothers and sisters who are more mature than we are spiritually have our best interest in mind, and want to help us. Oh, Father, what a tragedy it would be for a brother in Christ to spend his days hiding in his sin, thinking he's all alone. But instead, may we realize we're not in this alone. We care for one another. A true believer cares for his brothers and sisters. And so may we pray effectual, fervent prayers of righteous brothers and sisters caring for one another. For it's in your beautiful name I ask these things. Amen. May the Lord bless you. Have a great week.